Since the middle of chapter 2, Peter has been informing readers how they can live exemplary lives in a hostile world. He's been giving believers specific instructions on how to practice holiness as citizens, as workers, and as husbands and wives. If you remember, his main emphasis has been on the importance of having a heart of submission. So as we continue our study of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter will conclude his discussion on how we, as believers, can stand out in a hostile world by the way we conduct ourselves inside and outside the church. Thereafter, Peter will begin a new, a new section dealing specifically with the problem of persecution by unbelievers. So as we read and study this morning's passage, you'll discover a proper motive for living righteously and how, it'll help, and how that will help shape you under the fire of persecution. In general, I hope that this message will show you how much God will bless you when you give everyone the best of, of who you are. Yes, even those who are persecuting us. So if you have your Bibles with you, again, um, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you do, or if you're already there, uh, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Lord Heavenly Father, we come before you on this first Sunday of 2019 to, to glorify you, to praise you, to exalt you. We thank you for all you've done for us this past year in 2018. And we look forward, we look ahead with optimism, with hope, with, with so much to look forward to this upcoming year. What are you going to do, Lord? And so now as we open up your word, speak to us, Lord. Soften our hearts. Remove all the distractions that may be hindering us, Lord. We just desire to hear from you right now, Lord. This is, again, about you. This isn't about anybody else, but just about hearing you right now, Lord. Fill this room with your Holy Spirit. praise you and honor you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week we're going to continue on where we left off and we'll be in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And the Word of God says, Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And I'll stop there. 
for now and break down what we just covered. The neighborhood bar is probably one of the best, probably the best counterfeit there is to, to fellowship. Christ wants his church, wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it's a permissive, but it is a permissive, accepting and inclusive fellowship. It's unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And so many seek counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, I believe Christ wants his church to be unshockable, democratic, permissive, a fellowship where people could come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. Alcoholics Anonymous has this quality. Our churches too often miss it. As I mentioned in this particular section, Peter now is addressing believers within the church and is informing them now how they ought to behave in general. Here he offers general ethical principles that we ought to live by if you want to live godly lives in a world that opposes our lifestyle and our existence. Beginning in verse 8, he shares five ways Christians should live and relate to one another when they're in the midst of a hostile, of a hostile world. As Christians, as believers, we must be like-minded. This means that as members of this church, we should be in harmony with one another in our thoughts and our attitudes. It also means cooperation in the midst of diversity by working together in order to achieve a common goal or objective. This is the same term Paul used when he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Peter is well aware that because of various different factors, Christians will not always see eye to eye on everything. In that case, that would be uniformity, not unity. All Peter is saying here is that in spite of our differences, we ought to strive to find common ground for the sake of peace and unity and to build the church up. Whenever there are disagreements, the best formula is contained in a well-known expression, in fundamentals, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in everything, love. Not only are we told to be like-minded, but Peter also adds that we must be sympathetic. What Peter is describing here 
is having a heart of understanding for one another as God's people. It's looking at the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, and caring deeply about their needs, their joys, and their sorrows. Paul described it in this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have sympathy for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter also said that we're to love one another. The family of love, the family love of believers for one another was important to Peter and should also be important for us too. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus gave us the measure by which we as, or we as his disciples, as his people, as his followers would, the world would identify as, or the world would identify us as. There it says, by this everyone know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus did not command us to like our brothers and sisters in Christ. He commanded us to love them. And once we start loving them, it's going to be natural for you to eventually start liking them. You see, our common relationship with Christ is what inducted us all into the same family. And one evidence of true, genuine Christian faith is a warm love for one another as brothers and sisters. In the end of verse 8, Peter says that believers are to be compassionate and to be humble. To be compassionate means having a heart sensitive to the needs and the feelings of others and having a willingness to go out of your way to help them out. It refuses to turn cold, callous, or cynical in spite of abuse. Let me also add that we should also show compassion towards, towards those who aren't believers, to those who aren't Christians. We're to have the kind of compassion Jesus displayed to sinners. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we're told, When you went to shore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, 4, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. But Augustine said this, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It ha- has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. Yes, we ought to have compassion for the lost. If you don't, I challenge you to take a closer look at your heart to find out why you don't. To be humble essentially means thinking of others, putting others first, and saying and doing gracious things. It's the opposite of being or acting prideful and arrogant. Some Bible translations will use the word courteous here. 
Courtesy serves others before self, jumps at opportunities to assist, and expresses prompt appreciation for the kindness, the kindnesses received. It is never coarse, never vulgar or rude. Now, if verse 8 focuses on relationship among believers, it seems that verse 9 directs attention to how believers should respond, respond to unbelievers who mistreat them. Believers are not to pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. For Peter, this was important and one of essential themes of this letter. Repeatedly, believers are urged to suffer for righteousness sake without retaliating. The first part of this verse is similar to Paul's injunction in Romans 12, 17. Do not repay evil for evil. Similar wording is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. These admonitions, of course, are rooted in the teaching of Jesus himself. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, we find this exhortation from Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Instead, Peter tells us that Christians, as Christians, we're to bless those who mistreat us. And this is a hard one. I know that as, you know, as, as believers and, and maybe as, as men, as believing men, this is one of the hardest things that we can do. But we're to, again, bless those who mistreat us and to repay insult with kindness. We're not, to call, we're not called to harm, but to do good. Not to curse, but to bless. The reason believers should bless is unexplained since you were called for this. In other words, you have been called to bless others. You see, as a believer, you've been called by God to bless others so that you may inherit a blessing. And what blessing is that? A blessing from God that comes from living a righteous life. We must always be reminded that our calling is Christians. We must always remember that this is our calling as Christians, for this will help us to love our enemies and do them good when they treat us badly. The persecutions we experience on earth today only add to our eternal inheritance of glory that awaits us in heaven someday. But we also inherit a blessing today when we treat our enemies with mercy and love. By sharing a blessing with them, we receive a blessing ourselves. Persecution can be a time of spiritual enrichment for a believer. The saints and the martyrs in church history all bear witness 
to this act or to this fact. In verses 10 through 12, Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, to confirm that God's blessing rests on the one who refrains from evil deeds and evil speech and practices righteousness. The point of verse 10 is this. If you want to love life to the maximum and see good days, you should refrain from speaking evil and deceit. To love life is, is condemned in John 12, 25, but there it means to live for the self and disregard the true purpose of it. Here, it means to live in a way that God intended. At Peter's point of adding verse 11 is this, not only evil speech, but evil deeds are forbidden. To retaliate only intensifies the conflict. It's stooping to the world's weapons. You should repay evil with good and promote peace by meekly enduring abuse. You see, it's necessary you understand that fire cannot be fought with fire. And his point for adding verse 12 is this. The Lord looks with approval on those who act righteously and is attentive to their prayers. Now, yes, the Lord does hear the prayers of all his people. I absolutely believe that. I have no doubt about that. But this verse seems to indicate that he's especially attentive to those who suffer for Christ's sake when they don't return evil for evil. Verses 8 through 12, therefore teach that one proper motive for righteous living is the knowledge that such conduct will bring blessings from God in this life. Further, furthermore, we're once again drawn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Those who live righteously before God will, in the end, be vindicated. You will be vindicated by God when He returns. All that suffering that you endured, all that persecution, all those trials, all those false accusations, you will be vindicated in the end. You may not get, you know, you may not... Nothing may happen right now. You may have to suffer. But there's that hope that God again will, will vindicate you when He returns. However, those who live sinfully and oppressively will receive condemnation from God Almighty on that same day that He returns in glory. So the next time you're thinking of having or you think you're having a bad day, because nothing is going your way and you just simply hate life, I encourage you to read all of Psalm 34. Again, I just read a portion of it, or, or Peter just quoted a portion of it here, but read all of Psalm 34. You'll be surprised to discover that in reality, you're actually having a good day to the glory of God. 
Well, now that Peter has instructed several groups with specific guidelines on how to live in a world that is hostile to us, in the following verses, Peter gives us principles of enduring suffering in a way that is thoroughly Christian. So let's pick up in verse 12 and follow along as I read out loud, as I read through verse 17. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give, to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that, if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. During China's Boxer Revolution of 1900, insurgents captured a mission station, blocked all the gates but one. And in front of that one gate placed a cross flat on the ground. Then the word was passed to those inside that any who trampled on the cross underfoot would be permitted, would be permitted their freedom and life but that any refusing would be shot. Terribly frightened, the first seven students trampled the cross under the feet, under their feet and were allowed to go free. But the eighth student, a young girl, refused to commit to the sacrilegious act, kneeling beside the cross in prayer for strength. She arose and moved carefully around the cross and went out to face the firing squads. Strengthened by her example, every one of the remaining 92 students followed her to the firing squad. Here, Peter begins a new section dealing specifically with the problem of persecution by unbelievers. He starts with a rhetorical question in verse 13. Who then will harm you? if you are devoted to doing to do what is good the implied answer is no one however church history and our story here that I just read to you proves that 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 enemy that there are enemies of the gospel out there that, that enemies of the gospel have indeed um, harmed those who are devoted to, to to those who are doing good now there are at least, at least two possible explanations for this paradox. Generally speaking, those who follow a path of righteousness are not harmed. A policy of non-resistance disarms, disarms the opposition. There may be exceptions, but as a rule, the one who is eager for the right is protected from harm by his very goodness. And secondly, the second paradox, the, the worst that a foe can do to a Christian 
does not give eternal harm. The enemy can injure his body, but he cannot damage his soul. Here's another story. During World War II, a Christian boy of 12 refused to join a certain movement in Europe. Don't you know that we have the power to kill you? They said. Don't you know, he he replied quietly, that I have the power to die for Christ? He had the the conviction that no one was able to harm him. As showing that he wasn't naive about the issue of suffering, Paul continues by saying that even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. So while he believes generally in the rule of that good behavior will alleviate suffering, he knows that not all opponents will be lenient. But in those situations, he draws from Jesus' teachings. As Jesus taught in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. So what Peter is emphasizing here is even if you do have to endure suffering, don't fear the oppressors or be intimidated by their threats. When Polycarpus promised release if he would blaspheme Christ, he said, 86 years I have served Christ and he, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? When the proconsul threatened to expose him to the wild beasts, he replied, It's well for me to be speedily released from this life of misery. Finally, the ruler threatened to burn him alive. Polycarp said, I fear not the fire that burns for the moment. You do not know, you do not know that that fire which burns forever and ever. So instead of fear, Peter tells us in the beginning of verse 15 that we ought to focus our attention on someone else. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. To regard Christ the Lord as holy means to really believe that Jesus, not those who oppose you, is truly in control of events. By having this kind of reverence in your heart, you're maintaining a deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as your reigning Lord and King. Yet, the stance of Christians towards unbelievers mustn't be passive or neutral. He goes on to encourage believers to honor the Lord by being ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Although this primarily applies to times when Christians are being persecuted because of their faith, this is also applicable to everyday life. As a Christian, you should be ready to speak at any moment about the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done in and through your life. 
if you truly have this hope, if you truly have a hope of a future resurrection, of a f living in future glory in the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ, with, with God, it will sustain you through persecution and it will give you the strength to carry on when the world seems to be falling apart around you, when everything looks bleak. In either case, when you're witnessing and or sharing your testimony, we're told that it should be done with gentleness and respect. There should be no trace of bitterness, of harshness, or flippancy when we speak about our Lord and Savior. You'll find that when you speak to people respectfully, when you're not shoving it down people's throats, when you're just sharing the gospel in love, when you're sharing about what Christ has done in and through your life, people will listen. When you speak respectfully, it'll lead to conversations. And when you are persecuted, when you are standing in front of your accusers, it may possibly lead to leniency when you are being persecuted by them, when persecution strikes. Verse 16 also says that a believer must keep a clear conscience. Now, why is this important? See, if you know you're innocent of a crime, you'll be able to go through persecution with, bold, with the boldness of a lion. However, if you have a bad can conscience, if you're guilty of something, if, if people are accusing of, something, of, of you of something that is true, you'll be plagued with feelings of guilt and you won't be able to stand against the foe. When Joseph began to serve as steward in Potiphar's house and refused to sin, he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. The government officials in Babylon schemed to get Daniel in trouble because of his life and work where a and, and, and work where a witness, I'm sorry, and a witness was, was working against him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by his very life on earth, revealed the sinful hearts and deeds of people. And this is why they crucified him. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. Now, keep in mind that even if you were to lead a blameless life, it doesn't mean that you'll never face persecution. There will be enemies of the gospel out there who try to look for things, for something to accuse you of. And some may even try to bring false charges against you in this kind of scenario. If you find yourself in this kind of situation, you need not worry when that case comes to trial because your innocence will be proven and your accusers will be put to shame. Now Peter goes on to say in verse 17 that even if believers must suffer, which may be God's will, it's better to suffer 
for doing good than for doing evil. But why? Why is it better to suffer for doing right than for doing wrong? In this context, it's because wrongful suffering patiently endured is so remarkable that it becomes a powerful form of witness leading unbelievers to salvation. Just as Jesus Christ endured unjust suffering, and and next week we'll get more into that topic when we start to cover verse 18, but just as Christ endured unjust suffering for our salvation, Peter reasons, so we are blessed by God if we endure unjust suffering for the salvation of others. Now, I'll, I'll end this, this message by sharing a short story that illustrates how suffering can actually be a pathway to blessing. A little piece of wood once complained bitterly because its owner kept whittling away at it, cutting it, and filling it with holes. But the one who was cutting it so remorselessly paid no attention to its complaining. He was making a flute out of that piece of ebony, and he was too wise to desist from doing so. Even though the wood complained bitterly, he seemed to say, little piece of wood, without these holes, all this cutting, and all this cutting, you would be a black stick forever, just a useless piece of ebony. What I'm doing now may make you think that I'm destroying you, but instead I will change you into a flute and your sweet music will charm the souls of men and comfort many sorrowing hearts. My cutting you is making, is making of you. I'm sorry, my cutting you is the making of you. For only thus can you be a blessing in the world. This is what Jesus Christ does in our lives when we do suffer. When we do suffer and, uh, and are persecuted as believers. If you haven't yet gone through that, believe me, it's not going to be easy. But in those moments, you do, you simply have to hold on to the Lord. When things are going horrible, when no one seems to, uh, all your family members, everyone you love has abandoned you or is, is accusing you of something that you haven't done. And you know that it's, it's fake news. You know, what, what you have going for you is the fact that, again, God knows the truth. And as I mentioned earlier, he will vindicate you in the end. God is changing you through all this, is changing you through all that suffering. Trust in that. Believe in that. Have hope in that. He's transforming you. He's shaping you into the image of Christ. So as I conclude, uh, conclude and, and close this message, there's a couple of things we need to be reminded, in, uh, reminded of here. Be blessed. The Lord wants to bless you by giving all, by giving everyone your best, by, if you just do good, whether it's those in the church, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it's out there towards unbelievers, to those who are pointing fingers at you and saying, your God is fake, your God is real, Jesus is, you know, you're worshiping a false God. When you're being accused, blessing them, it's having that heart. And that, again, that's, that's how you know that you truly are converted, that the Holy Spirit is truly living in you. If you're able to look at your persecutors and say, yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't believe what you're saying, but I know who lives in me. And he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. He cares for you and loves you and wants to do an amazing work in your life if you just allow him to. And as if you've heard this message, I hope that you see the importance of his trusting and believing in Christ. That you'll see what Christ has done for you on the cross. If you're watching, if you're here watching or you're listening online and, and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, or if you wandered away and you want to come back, all you've got to do is just reach out because he's there. He's standing at the door and knocking. He's standing at the door of your heart and knocking. And all you've got to do is let him in. All these things I've mentioned about, you know, enduring suffering and all that stuff will come in time. It's not going to be easy at first, but again, he's going to show you these things. He's going to reveal these things. And, and the more you walk with the Lord, the more it's going to be easier just to be like, to turn the other cheek and just to walk away, to give the shirt off your back to an enemy. But if you're ready to do that, if you're ready to commit your life today, right now, and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, pray this prayer with all sincerity. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for me. I confess that he is Lord. I confess all my sins to him now. Forgive me for all that I've done, Lord. Give me a new heart. Make me clean. By faith, I receive your forgiveness, Lord. So now I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may walk according to your ways all the days of my life. Fill me with your Spirit and give me the strength, Lord, to resist the evil that's out there, everything that wants to bring me down. Teach me your ways, Lord. Make me new. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.